Welcome to season two of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. We are the champions, my friend. We are. And you went to the parade. I did not go to the parade. My kids were scared of being trampled or shot <laughs> because America, a million people in the streets. Yeah. There was like 1.5 million people in downtown Houston along one yeah. street. And I was going to go. We, you know, we had the day off. But the kids were like, nope, scared. Welcome to America. Welcome to Texas. Welcome, welcome to Texas. Welcome to yeah. Texas where guns have more rights than women. That's right. And uh, and the Astros are the world champs, and y'all hate us because you ain't us. That's right. Everybody wanted Houston. Not ain't us. Ain't us, to be clear. Uh, <laughs> so judge us all you'd like. Go ahead. Because this episode is about... Judgment. Hey, see what I did there? Attaboy. I the full start. I started with a song. Attaboy. I started, welcome to Pines and Perspectives. <laughs> if you haven't liked or subscribed or shared this content, that hurts. Very much so. I am deeply offended. Look, it's a hard day, Cullen. It's a hard day. It's We're hard actually day. filming this the day after uh, November 8th. And Texas is just all is just right where it has always been. But I, I don't want to get on that soapbox. This is not a politics conversation. No, but it is one about judgment. So it may come up. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what you drinking? I am drinking the St. Arnold Original Amber Ale. That's a great beer. It is, I have a story about this beer. When I was 21 years old, of legal drinking age, St. Arnold's here in Houston. It is Houston's oldest craft. I think it's Texas's, no, that's no. Yeah, it is Houston's oldest craft beer. Houston's oldest craft beer. No, Texas's oldest craft brewery. Oh, craft brewery. Craft brewery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is definitely the first brewery, like, first brewery in Houston. Um, it's also had, St. Arnold's has also had multiple, like, beer of the year awards. Oh, yeah. And mid, medium-sized brewery yeah. Uh, awards. Yeah, they are fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, huge supporters of Houston life and yep. and nonprofit work. Well, the and, Art Car um, Show. Art yeah. Car, uh, all the things. Um, and... Back in the day when I was 21 years old, which was how many years ago was that? 14 years ago, my God. Um, St. Arnold's Brewery used to be in this little bitty warehouse, like uh, uh, um, like a thousand square feet, like super small when they started. Where in the city? Real close by. By where their right current location is or nope. near where we are now? No, nope. over where Carbach is now. Really, that was St. Arnold's first location, no, or not near that there? location, but in okay. that in that area, in that area. Interesting. Um, in okay. a little in a little warehouse with only two bathrooms, and they but they still did tours. You could show up on a Saturday, you could pay fifteen dollars and get four pints, four tokens for pints, but there was no air conditioning. Yeah. There was no like real. They had a few tables, but it was just like in the middle of the, the brewery. The brewery, yeah. And there was only two restrooms, and there's only one toilet per restroom. So on any given Saturday morning, when I was twenty twenty one years old, my friend Nick and I would go down to St. Arnold, pay fifteen bucks, get drunk as a skunk, stand in very long lines to get into the bathroom, and just sweat bullets because there was be, no AC, no AC, and it would just be packed full of people. Yeah, but that's when I fell in love with 
brown ales and amber ales. Yeah. Because those, so St. Arnold's first two beers were the amber and the brown. Okay. And I think the Alyssa, they probably did the Alyssa originally. What is as their well. brown called now? Well, they don't do it anymore. It's discontinued. Okay, most I'm like, most of those original beers are discontinued with the exception of, of the, amber. the Amber Ale and the Alyssa IPA. Okay. So I've been drinking this this beer on a consistent basis for damn near 20 years. Wow. Dang. And it is still to this day one of my very favorite beers on the planet. Yeah. Uh, that's a great beer. I love St. Arnold. Um, but if we're being honest, I love Amber Ales. That's not my favorite. Okay, that's fair. Saint the Ar- Fat Tire Amber is my oh, favorite. Oh, I love. The new Belgian Fat I love Tire. Fat. So my favorite beer of all time from St. Arnold was the Brown Ale, though. That's gone now, that you can't get anymore. That doesn't exist yeah. anymore. You, and, and, you know, we go to the brewery. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I can, like, I, I know people that work there. Like, yeah. there is no Brown Ale. Like, right. It's not it's, like it's, you know. Done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um. That's sad, but Amberell is uh, probably the next best thing from them, in my opinion. I love it. Uh, so that's what I'm drinking today. Atta boy. A little bit biased on how I'm going to review it, obviously. Uh, we are at Adam's house, and... Uh, Cullen forgot to bring I the beer. I forgot to bring beer, and so... Oh, pause. All right, we back. We back. Uh, so, yeah, I forgot to bring beer, and I was like, hey, Adam. What you got? Yeah, what you got? And he was like, hey, man, I got this leftover Guinness draught. Uh, stout that I had from St. Patty's Day. Day. And I'm like, okay, I can do it. So here's my thing. I do like stouts. Um, I'm quite picky about them. Me too. Um, I love the Guinness Extra Stout. Yeah. I don't know if love is how I would say it, but I mean, oh, it's no, I love it. Okay. Yeah, okay. I love it. I when you. it gets when it gets cold outside, oh, that's yeah. my go-to beer. Uh, on tap, it is. Oh, yeah, for money, sure. Money. For sure. Yeah. And the, the more you can get it in that, like, 63 to 68 degree drinking Ooh, temperature okay okay it's money okay um okay. you really get the like the milk elements the All lactose the element yeah it's great um this one i don't love um <laughs> sorry to disappoint <laughs> but i think and this is a great conversation because i don't know that we've ever had it about on this podcast about beer, but this is a pasteurized stout. Yeah, that's right. So if you don't know, pasteurization is a process of heating something in order for it to be preserved so that you can ship it longer, has longer shelf life or any of that stuff. Milk, think milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Milk is pasteurized. Um, I think that has something to do with it because I don't know. Probably. I don't know what it is about this one. But it's just not my favorite. I got but you. But it's been a hot minute since I tried it, so let's see. Who knows? Cheers, Cheers buddy. Stupendous. Look, it's good. It's balanced. It's exactly what you want out of an amber ale. It has the classic St. Arnold um, flavor palette. It's, uh, I think the alcohol by volume is like 5.2%. Aren't they required to put that on the bottle? 6.2%, uh, 12 ounces in a can. And it is just, it's malty, it's balanced. It's, um, the hop is super subtle. Uh, you taste a lot of the, the, um, the other grains in the beer, which is what I really like about it. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than, as the can says at the very bottom, it is perfectly balanced. And I agree. I will give it 
I will give it on the Adam Cheney beer rating scale of one to ten. It's gonna catch a solid seven for me. That a boy. That's yeah. a good score. Um, so I can't find the ABV on this one. Yeah. I'm gonna guess it's like a six percent. I'm gonna guess it's somewhere around six to seven. It does have a little bit of heat to it. Little um, little little boozy. Little boozy. Um I also just noticed on the can it says nitrogenated yeah. for smoothness. So it's a nitro brew beer. Well, you know, Guinness got off into doing all the nitros. Well, a lot of the stouts are have yeah, like a they nitro, have nitro situation yeah. now too. Yeah. So maybe that's why it's pasteurized so that they could do the nitro. But no, because the well, other you know, one has you a have nitro. nitro stouts that are not yeah, pasteurized. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um I also will say, I need to say this as well. Um it's brewed in Dublin. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. So my parents lived in Belgium for a while. Right. And they used to drink Stella Artois over there all the time. It's because it's water over there. That's because it's just what people drink. But they say over here it tastes different. Oh, I'm sure it does. And they used to drink it on the plane, and they would say on the plane it, it would different. taste different. I'm sure of it. And so I'm sure shipping like changes these it. beers changes it. I mean, you have elevation changes, you have pressure changes. Four point two percent. I, I just I looked it up. What? 4.2? Yeah. So wild. Um, yeah, it's not my favorite even today again. Uh, it is the top-selling Guinness beer of all time and was originally created in 1959. Really? Because they were established in 1759. Yeah, well... The, it took them a year in to get this beer? 1959, my two guy. Two years. Or 200, 200 years. 200 years to come up with this beer? Guinness Draught was developed in 1959 and has been the top-selling Guinness beer ever. Ever. Of all time. Huh. So the people, it's, a, it's the people's favorite, you know? Well, I'm going to uh, yeah, what's your judge rating? them for it being their favorite because the extra shot is far superior. Give it, give it to us. Oh, it's like a 5.8. Yeah, I don't think okay. it's very good. Okay. Um, the bottle is gorgeous. Is it? It's I love all, it. It's all just one Look big label. Let me see this. Let me see this. It's a harp. It literally matches my shirt, my shoes. There's something about the black and the gold and the white. I don't know what it is. It's a harp, dude. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. I guess. Stop being so judgmental. Well, that is what we need to talk about. I'm great at transitions. Um, so let's talk about judgment. Let's talk about it. Um, why did judgment arise as a Christian element of theological conversation? Got to solve the problem of evil. Correct. You got to solve the problem of evil. And the way in which Christians have chosen to do that is they either do one of two things. God becomes the... Mm initiator of evil mm -hmm. so like think deuteronomy right like god blesses the faithful and curses the disobedient initiator is an interesting word that i would like to have a conversation about why well, did you not use the creator of evil ah uh, yes yes uh <laughs> well no keep going keep going okay. keep going keep going so uh so you have that element where like god becomes the initiator of it and anything that happens good or evil is the like because god chose to do that yeah the other way you do it is you solve the problem of evil through God's justice. Yep. The justice of God. Yep. Enter the conversation of judgment. Okay. Because this is how our minds think, right? Um, we think about 
judgment and justice in retributive terms. Right. So like right. uh, think to Jesus's statement with the Pharisees. I know you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, forgive your enemies. Turn the other well, turn the other cheek. Yeah, right yeah. I, another I, passage. I, I say to you, yeah. um, if someone strikes you on your right, All right turn, turn and give them your left also. If they ask for your tunic, give them your cloak or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because that's that's not retributive justice. Mm. That's restorative justice. Big difference. Uh, very big difference. Yeah. And what happens is, unfortunately, in these conversations about judgment, here in America, they've been given over primarily to premillennial dispensationalism. Definitely. And so because of that, you read into a white throne judgment from Revelation. Oh, this look like, at you. Yeah, that's right. This like natural apocalyptic right. thing that John the Elder on some island when he's tripping on some mushrooms dreams up. Goats and sheep, sheep and goats, separating yeah, them out. Exactly. And so you end up with this element of like this white throne judgment where Jesus sits up there mm. and judges mm. faithfulness and apostasy. Mm -hmm. um, God have mercy. Yeah, I don't know if it's the most advantageous way to view it because what also happens when you have that outlook, when you have this like retributive justice view of God, what happens is it's very easy for you to take on that mm. judgmental yeah. posture as like first Corinthians 11, right? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look, man, you, you are really hitting the nail on the head for my problems with Christianity right now. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 It's because people take on the God complex that they see about God and but, they judge people for but it. But because we are told to, how many times have you been told that the ultimate goal of life is Christ likeness? Oh countless it is the goal yeah to become like jesus for to sure be like christ for sure so if christ is a humble man who turns the other cheek and refuses to respond to his enemies with violence and allows himself to be killed for the sake of justice but then in his resurrected state is a judge on a throne who is going to literally i mean look if you're holding like a like a penal substitutionary atonement view right. is literally going to draw a line between in and out and the out gets eternal conscious torment for eternity yeah that's one option that is one option right, yeah, right, right yeah, but yeah. just follow and, me and follow two, me where i'm going yeah, that's the most common one it's predominant yeah. it's at least in our cultural in our setting. american culture right yeah. then just follow me on the on the on the uh, rationale here. Then that if your goal is to become Christ-like, then and you see you have this perspective of this white throne judgment, which I love the way you articulated that. What is to stop you from putting yourself in that place? If I am like Christ and He is like me, and we and my goal is to ascend to Christ likeness, then judging. Uh, the atheist or the lesbian couple next door or the um, the homeless person on the corner or the Muslim across the street seems Christ-like. Only if you only if you interpret Christ through the lens of Paul. Ooh, well, welcome to America. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. And on any given Sunday, uh, and 
white American evangelicalism, 80% of all sermons preached will be preached from one of 13 letters of the New Testament. If there's a pastor or former pastor listening to this podcast right now or watching us, I want you to go to your bookshelf and I want you to count how many books do you have on Pauline theology versus let's just say like gospels, gospel hermeneutics, gospels and acts. Yeah. <laughs> I guarantee. Tell them. Oh yeah. I think, you know, to be fair, I think my own bookshelf is guilty of this. Me Same too. truth. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, that's because that's what seminaries prize because it's prescriptive theology. You ever heard of Howard Thurman? Yeah. You've heard of Howard Thurman. <laughs> How, Howard Thurman. I said it for the listener, not for you, boy. Howard Thurman is a, um, well, just Google him, but he, he, he's a black theologian. He's dead now. RIP. But he wrote one of the most impactful books in my entire life. It's called Jesus for the Disinherited. Jesus for Disinherited? Jesus, Jesus for, yeah. for the Disinherited. For the it's on the shelf. I should have gra- grabbed it. Uh, but the one thing that stood out in that book to me above all else is his grandmother was a slave, mm. an American slave, black woman held you know, in slavery uh, here in the United States. I I can't remember what state they're from anyways, but uh, you know, in, in, in Howard's early life, this is a story I tell a lot. And if I've told it on the podcast already, I'm sorry. You have not in Howard's early life. His grandmother was very elderly, obviously like, you know, um, abolition had occurred. She wasn't a slave anymore, but she was very elderly and she was, she had gone blind, but she loved, for her grandson to read the Bible out loud to her. Mm. So he would, and he talks about in that book how impactful and meaningful that was. But, however, she would not allow him to read any Pauline text. He could read all the Old Testament, uh, the Gospels. Because Paul's the author for the white man. What he says in that book is, the slave masters forced them to church on Sundays, and the only passages they ever read were Paul. Pauline texts. Yep, it's true. Welcome to America. Paul gives prescriptive theology. He's, he, Paul, Paul is writing very specific letters. That's the other thing we need to do. We need to understand that when we read Paul, we are literally reading someone else's mail great from 2,000 years ago, and we only have one side of the story. Well said. We don't know all of the problems that Paul is trying to combat in those places. Um, and which is why you have more Pauline books on your shelf than you do anything else because we don't know because because our theologians have just spent a lot of time and energy trying to figure it out. Correct. Yeah. And what's unfortunate, like if you were if you were really going to have a conversation about who was prime position to have the most impact on like global Christianity, it's not Paul. Mm. It's Peter. Oh, come on. Yeah. Who, what did Jesus say to him? On this rock, I shall you rocky, yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Upon this, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter's name is rock, rock. in Greek, it, yeah. And Jesus says he calls him Rocky and says, "On this rock, I, I will build, build my church." church. Uh, that's Matthew sixteen, I believe. And if you're Catholic, you believe Peter's the first pope because of that, right? Uh, yeah. So if you look at it, like that is probably the guy that's most positioned to oh, have yeah. the largest impact, and yet. When you studied the Petrine epistles, what did they get lumped into? The general epistles? General Not epistles. Pauline. You got a whole class on Paul. Yeah. But the general epistles, yeah. Revelation, the Petrines, all the Johannines, Jude, James, all those general epistles. Which is interesting, like the Johannine uh, uh, corpus, 
really emphasizes love over judgment. The Petrine Corpus really emphasizes inclusion. Well, the Petrine Corpus also does do and some James. uniformity. Well, that's right. True. So there's a but whole thing it, in First Peter where women cannot adorn themselves with oh, jewelry okay. and makeup. See, they can't be a temptation to men. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. There's but a lot of Peter, uniformity in there. Isn't it Peter in Acts who has the vision of the sheet? And yes, that's all. in chapter ten of Acts. Um, of of Acts. Acts, he has that vision where it comes down and he says, uh, "It's all you know, clean. It's all clean. You can eat any of it. Uh, Let the Gentiles in." But it doesn't really do a ton because then when you get to the Jerusalem Council in That's 15, true. when he goes back, That's they true. still give these criteria. That's right. These four, let me see, these four things. And, you know, what what ends up happening is white evangelical pastors will say, oh, hey, it's the moral law. Right. The moral law. Yeah, dude. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, that's just some made up nonsense for you to be able to pick what you want to keep and what you don't want to keep. Cherry pick the scriptures is what we do best. Yeah, exactly. What they end up telling them is, uh, let me find it right here. Yeah, here it is. The council's letter to the Gentile believers. Um, Mandela Barnes just lost. Sorry, it's the day after election day. I'm kind of into it. <laughs> you were right, though. That's what you said right before we started recording. Well, you, you thought know. Mandela, Mandela Barnes would lose in Wisconsin. Anyway, well. sorry. Side note. Okay. Um, so they come in, and this is from Acts 15, 28, the letter that the Jerusalem Council sends to the Gentile believers. Yes. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials. So, remember, this whole thing is like, can Gentiles even be a part of us? Right. And if so, right. what do they have to conform to of Judaism? Right. What, what barriers do they have to jump? Remember, Peter, five chapters ago, has just been given this vision of the sheet coming down. All things are clean. Don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. Right. Right. Here are the four things that they say they must hold as essentials. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Okay? Now, I'm going to remind you of our Pauline text. Mm. What's Romans 14? Paul's entire argument that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols as long as it's not causing anyone to stumble? That's it. Okay, so Paul's already in our biblical text at odds with the Jerusalem Council. <laughs> okay. See? You following? Yes. Okay good and from blood oh yeah you got to abstain from blood for yeah. whatever reason well i mean think about ancient health right they uh, didn't is that know it? i mean okay anyways well keep there's going. lots keep of blood going. transmitted diseases and yeah, stuff I know. um and from what's been strangled right. and from fornication now let's talk about that word fornication real uh -oh. quick since we're already here uh -oh. and we were already talking about judgment right let's we're go. talking about yeah. judgment and we were talking about you know you mentioned the lesbian couple next door right they're married, so which, by the way, they're not fornicators. Is there actually a lesbian couple next door? Yeah. Oh, cool. Dope. Yeah. Um, fornication. That's a terrible word translation. Ooh, how do you translate it? Well, do you know what the word is that they're translating as fornication? Tell me the Greek word. Maybe I can remember. Porneia. Oh, yeah, right. So it's exploitative. No. Well, I mean, it could be. Well, porneia, it just means sex things that are bad. Yeah, like a... Yeah, but like how... Okay, anyways, keep going. Well, that's a great question. How do you determine what's bad? And what did you say? 
What, Exploitative? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's and clearly. Har- harmful, harmful. Yeah, we have another word for that. Rape. Uh, well, that's an <laughs> English trigger, word. Trigger warning. The Greek has <laughs> oh. another word for that. It's called arsenikoites, which is what we commonly translate homosexuality. Uh, but once again, that's a white man reading into it. Get out of here. BDAG, the big like lexicon of the I, Greek language. I know BDAG. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking <laughs> to the audience. Uh, that lexicon for the big, uh, all those Greek languages yeah. and all those words outside of just the New Testament, because New Testament is Koine Greek. Right, right, right. Uh, you also have Attic Greek, and yeah. you have lots of other, like classical Greek. You have lots of ranges of Greek. And BDAG is the one that everybody goes to for like all of those. Well, BDAG glosses Arsenokoites as pederast. Okay, so pedophilia. Well, exploitative well, against a vul- sex exploitation against a vulnerable person, predominantly male to male, is what pederast is. Yeah. So, um, exploitation. So you have like, even in this Jerusalem council, you have these people setting up ways to judge Gentiles, but then you have Paul showing up in Romans and going, "Nah, that ain't really how it is." Well, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, wasn't he? Yes. Yes, he is God's instrument to the Gentiles. And even Paul is coming in going, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with these guys. Yeah, um, That's because this stuff is fluid and we don't have all of like the conversation and context, but white evangelicalism has prioritized Paul because it is prescriptive theology. It is black and white. Do this, don't do that. It, it it makes the New Testament a rule book. And so we've read Jesus through the lens of Paul. Yep. If you read Jesus through his own lens, you wouldn't view it that way. I agree. I agree. Which is why I don't really read the Bible anymore. Well, you should at least read the Gospels. I know. I know. Well, I, I, okay, yeah, you know, that's a different conversation. <laughs> but I, it is um it is it is dogmatic fundamentalism yes that gets you to the place to where you think you have this is my hang up man one of my hang ups where you feel like you are certain about your interpretation of a select group of passages and you wield that certainty in social, like not spiritual, not your relationship with God in your prayer closet, but social settings, like my neighbors and, yeah. how, and how you view them. Yeah. And you put yourself, because of dogmatic fundamental, fundamentalism and certainty, you put yourself in the place of that judge because you think. That's what God wants you to do. Exactly. Well, let me let me give an example of how this plays out early in the biblical text. Okay, this is one of my favorite examples in the like because what we're talking about is we're actually talking about divine likeness that that each human is made in the image and likeness of God, and there's an internal desire to be like God sure. in that. Well, we see that play out early on in the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis. If you remember. When Adam and Eve sin, the first thing they do is they realize their nakedness. Mm-hmm, so they mm-hmm. cover it, and then God shows up on the scene, and they figure it all out. He doesn't know where they are. Right. And God curses 
administers a lot of curses. There yep. are four curses that God administers there that set the course of the trajectory from then on for the biblical text. You have chapter four, which is the Cain and Abel story, which is terrible. Then you have a genealogy in chapter five. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter six, you get Noah. Mm-hmm. And you remember, the world is so terrible. There's so much violence in the world. Corrupt. That God says, I got to start over. That's this cor- is too bad. Almost as corrupt as Ken Paxton. Correct. Sorry, y'all. Um, <laughs> if, if you remember, when you get to chapter nine at the end, when they get off the boat, Noah plants his vineyard and he gets drunk. Drunk as a skunk. Drunk as a skunk. So drunk that he gets hot. He strips his clothes off and naked. passes out naked. Naked. His son covers him, sees him, sees him, and then covers him. Well, no, then the other two sons come and cover him oh, without yeah. looking at him. Right? They walk in backwards, cover like with that blanket to cover his shame. To cover his shame because nakedness is shame. Well, it's definitely well, but remember, this is parallel storytelling from ah uh, because what's the first thing Noah does when he wakes up and discovers that he was seen naked? Curses his son. Oh, so he tries to take on the position of God. Oh, I see. But as judge, as judge. And what happens? Noah screws it up because Noah, Noah does not curse ham. Noah does not curse the offender. Right. Noah curses his innocent grandson, Canaan, who tried to take care of him. And then, and now Canaanites. Oh, wait, 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 wait. This is great though. Because this is also an example of restorative justice because God did not tell Noah to administer that curse. And what's the land of promise? Palestine? Oh, no. What, what In the biblical story, the land of Canaan. Oh, yes, yes, is yes. the yes, land yes. of milk and honey. Oh, yeah. Very good. God is you. restoring what humanity continues to mess up, trying to be like God in the wrong ways. So how do you get from there, which you've done a very good job of, our, of just like outlining that. How do you go from that? To, let's say, Jesus in Revelation, sitting on that judgment throne, spitting people out of the mouth of God, metaphorically, whatever that means, uh, and separating the wheat from the tares. I know I'm jumping around the New Testament here. How do you go from Noah screwed that up because it wasn't God? God's it wasn't God's instruction. Well, yeah, there's nowhere in the text that it says God right. told Noah to do that. Right. It was not God's instruction, so maybe you extrapolate that out to it wasn't God's will. I don't know. Uh but then you fast forward to the theology of the authors of New Testament text and it does seem like God is in through Jesus is in that place of righteous king who still curses his creation. And by that, I mean, sends people to hell. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe I'm misinterpreting. Well, so first I want to say like, anytime we have to interpret revelation, like just put a big question. Mark. Like, yeah, that's the deal. like you, Apocalyptic you should text. not be building theologies off of revelation. Oh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. That's fair. That's it fair. is. So we are so removed from that culture. That's fair. It is so imaginative and metaphoric like and like there's a whole thing in there i think it's um it's a literal genre unto itself 
And oh no, no. Well, yeah. And Paul has Paul has elements of apocalyptic literature. Sure, sure. So does the Old Testament, sure, right? right? Like right, think right. about Daniel and Ezekiel. Right. Ezekiel thirty seven is a great example of like a classic Old Testament apocalyptic text. Um, but here in Revelation, there are so many things that we don't understand. Like I'm trying to find it. The book of Revelation or the letter is written to seven churches in ancient Asia Minor. Yeah. Um. Once again, we're reading people's mail that we only have one side of the conversation to. Right. Sardis. Yeah, so you have you have Ephesus, Ephesus Smyrna, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea are the the ones you're going to. And one of these, I can't remember. One of these, the entire thing about them yeah. is based on this like weird like water source that they have there. It's like a hot spring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one where it's like, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my yeah. mouth thing. Yeah. That's an ancient metaphor for yeah. a, for a unique place that we don't have. So you shouldn't approach revelation trying to come up with great answers. But what I can tell you is when Jesus is introduced into the revelation story, he doesn't look anything like what he's supposed to look like from the gospels. A Gandalf-looking character riding a horse yeah. covered in tattoos, yeah, um, <laughs> and and apparently like dripping with blood. <laughs> yeah, it, it, Revelation Jesus is scary. Yeah, yeah, Revel. Yeah, that's a great way to say that. Revelation Jesus is scary. He's not approachable and violent and violent, which is not what you see Jesus. Yeah, I just I don't know, man. Of it's, the gospel, the Bible saying. is wild. Um, here's what I think it is. I think. If you're asking me, I don't think you should be reading Revelation for anything other than an ancient letter mm-hmm. written to seven specific churches that are being extremely devastatingly persecuted by the Roman Empire yeah. after the destruction of Nero, sure. of the temple by Nero in AD 70. I think Revelation's probably written somewhere around the 90s to 100s. Um, and I think it is unique to them. I think it is. I think it is somehow comforting to them that they are literally in the midst of a war. Mm. They are being murdered by their empire. Isn't it interesting that modern day evangelical Christians still take on that identity? Oh, it's because they still think they're persecuted. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Like I, when people say like American Christians are persecuted, I'm like Christians weren't persecuted in mass after Constantine. Like right. Constantine's the worst thing that well, could have happened to the church. Maybe like in certain parts of there are there foreign are, countries. Well, but now anyways, there are yeah. certainly, but yeah. I mean, not think in back, America. Well, think back <laughs> to the Crusades, right? Christians yeah, 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 and Muslims yeah, have yeah, been yeah. at odds forever. Yeah, right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's going to persist for some time. It's an age-old battle. I'm not sure it's going anywhere, uh, which is a shame. Can but I, go ahead. Sorry, I don't think that. Like when we talk about judgment, I don't think revelation is the place we should be going. Okay. Yeah. Um, Where would you go? What, what let's talk about the Bible. What biblical text do you personally, and maybe it's none use to form your view of God's judgment? The sermon on the Mount. Okay. Say more. I like this direction. Sermon on the Mount is uh, a famous text. We don't know if it's Jesus' first sermon. It's certainly his first sermon in Matthew. Matthew um, 3, 4, 5. 5, four, 6, 7. 5, 6, 7. Ah, 
I'm out of practice, y'all. Um, read my Bible more. It begins with the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and what are the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Amen. Um, on my any account. of that? Any of that look like a powerful, judgmental person? Is that what Jesus is calling anyone to be? No. No. So quite, then it goes quite the opposite, perhaps. Correct. And remember, this is one sermon. Right. White evangelicalism also does a bad job of this. Sure. It's breaking it up into these like little sub subheadings and things. It's one story, one sermon, one flow of thought. Three Jesus chapters. moves out of that yeah. and into salt and light. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so wait, you're supposed to be a light to a dark world? You're supposed to be salt? You're supposed to preserve the goodness in God's creation? Okay, cool. Uh, the law and the prophets. Is what he moves into next. I didn't come to abolish all this stuff. I'm here in fulfillment of it. Like, and I'm going to show you a new way of doing it, the yep. right way. Because I gave you 613 laws to follow. The Old Testament gave you that, and you couldn't do it. So now I'm going to give you a new way to do it. And here's what I'm going to talk about first. Anger. Mm. Oh, why? Because that's where judgment's rooted? Oh, boy, preach. Oh, okay. Got it. So uh, first he talks about anger. He's like, don't murder anybody. Do not murder anybody. Right. And if you hate someone, it's the same as murdering them in your heart. Oof. Okay. We're getting somewhere with judgment. Right. And then, what makes people angry? Adultery. Okay, fair. I've been cheated on. That's right. Uh, I'm divorced because I was cheated on. And I can uh, I, I can uh, testify to the fact that you have been angry. <laughs> to some extent, still am. Yeah. Yeah, right. uh, I'm not sure you just easily get over that level no, of, of course, anger. Of course not. When we were talking about with Dante, who's the person that's in, in it? Like is uh, the dude who? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're gonna talk okay, about okay, that sorry, next. Sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry. We're sorry, gonna sorry, talk yeah. about that next. Sorry. Um. So. Jesus then talks about adultery. And what does he say? If anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery already. Because yeah. it's about the fidelity of the heart. It's about yeah. where you are in your marriage. That it's not an exploitative, it's not a political, it's not an, an, an advancement tactic. It is a genuine love relationship that requires, you know. Mutuality. Uh, correct. Yeah. Um, and then... Jesus moves into divorce. Uh-huh. Now, I think this is very interesting in a conversation about judgment because we know all throughout the Bible, if you get cheated on, you're legally, like, the Bible gives you permission to go get a divorce. Right. It's not a question. But look what Jesus says. Um, I, I mean, unless you're the female. Anyways, right. go ahead. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Right, so that's that's Moses' law because back in the day, in ancient Judaism, um, people were getting divorced for very frivolous things, like you know, if if she cooked a meal you didn't like, oust it. Um, well, they're a dime a dozen. Women are property. They, that's the thing. They're cattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not humans. Right. Yeah, they are right. property that you own. Right. And so if they do some stuff you don't like, you, you can kick them out. Them. Yeah, it's insane. 
The only thing was Moses was like, you got to care for her. Yeah. You have to issue her a certificate of divorce so she can either go home right. to her dad or with honor re- yeah. or get remarried. Right. Because if she doesn't have that. She has nothing. She has nothing. Her parents won't accept her. Right. And her only form of like livelihood is prostitution right. or slavery. Right. Which sometimes it's both. Oof. So. The Bible. Jesus says. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we could read all kinds of stuff in there about laws and what's permitted, and that's not what Jesus is trying to communicate. What Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to communicate that it's about grace. It's about grace. It's always about grace. That is literally why Jesus came. And so he follows that up with a conversation about oaths. Let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. And then he ends the chapter Hmm. with love for your enemies. Mm -hmm. Now, because it's about grace. He continues on in six and seven and seven gets a little bit more like there's some more stuff and there's some stuff in here about judging judgment and judging others, but it's a flow. Well, it's a flow of thought. Seven is where, or is it six where it's uh, what do we call it? Love your neighbors as yourself. Oh, that's in five. Uh, that's right here. It's the, the golden rule. Oh, no, no. That's in seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, golden rule. Uh, and treat everything, others the way you want to be treated. And everything do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophet. This is the law. And the prophets. With the law, which judges. Right. The, 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 the function the, of the, the law. The thing of which you judge people against. Yep. It, it, it is purpose <laughs> is judgment. It is now defined by Jesus as what? What's the what's what's it say? Loving or treating? What is it? The golden rule. Everything and do everything. to others as you would have them do to you. Exactly. So that seems like grace to me as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and don't you think loving your enemies aren't aren't people that live their lives against the message of God, the enemies of God? <sighs> You know, man, the, yes, I, my answer to your question is yes, but there is also in this American context, this reinterpretation of what it means to love your enemies, because I've been told many times that the, the highest form of love is for me to say, Cullen, you're in sin. Yeah. It's correction. It's correction. Well, you know why? Because it's another faulty reading of 2 Timothy 3.16. There you go. So here we go. 2 Timothy 3.16 is this famous verse about the Bible, which people have used to promote like inerrancy, like beliefs and things. And this is what it says. All scripture. All scripture yeah. is inspired by God. God breathed. God breathed. Inspirited. Into- inspired. Yes, yes, yes. Um... Yeah, so all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for what? Uh, the edification. For teaching. For teaching. For reproof. Reproof. reproof for correction. Correction. And training in righteousness. And training. Once again, prioritized Paul over Jesus. Interesting. You are preaching today. Well, it'd be like that sometimes. It'd be like that sometimes. I just, there is this air of elitism that comes with this this ascribing to a very correctional 
It's, it's very elitist. It's like the secret knowledge thing. It's Gnosticism. Right. Yeah. It's like we have figured it out and my neighbor hasn't, so they're wrong. But I'm going to ignore the fact that I should treat them the way that I want to be treated and love them as I love God. And But because the way to love them is to go over to my neighbors and say, you're living in sin um, and this is me loving you. That's cognitive dissidence well, to it, its core. Well, it's modernity. Say more. It's yeah. So I, I think I've said this before, but like fundamentalism is just modernity using the Bible as its source. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's trying to take like the fundamental premises of modernity that objective truth is the answer to everything, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's your source of truth. Oh, enter conversation about inerrancy. And so I can be a fundamentalist and use modern, modern tactics with the Bible with and an create ancient, these systems with an ancient text, that with knew, an ancient text that, that is far removed modernity. from modern culture. Yeah. By, by thousands of years. Oh yeah. For <laughs> thousands of years. Right. Like I say this all the time. Oh, like when, when Paul was writing like, Hey, don't commit pornea. Right. Right. Paul had no idea that 2000 years later, we would have video porn yeah. in everybody's pocket right here. In our phones. Like, yeah, Paul had Paul would have never dreamed of that. And if he would have, I guarantee you would have wrote some different stuff. He would have talked about it a little bit different. If he'd have yeah. thought if he'd have thought that his letters were going to be read for thousands of years, yeah. I think he probably would have said some things other than like, oh hey, when you come back, bring my books back and that jacket I forgot. Right. They're literally his mail to people he knew. Do you think he would have taken a stronger stance against slavery? Because one of the big hits against Paul is that he actually sort of kind of quasi endorses slavery multiple times. Yeah. Well, Paul's not trying to commit like social upheaval, right? Like, yeah. and so, and he's a powerful figure. Yes. I believe that if Paul would have known that he would have spoken much harder against slavery. We Cause hope. like, to be fair, if you read the letter of Philemon, I have, I've written a lot on it. <laughs> I, I can make a pretty good argument there that that is Paul urging for abolition. Well, anyways, that's a different podcast conversation. It is. We're, we're but I also think that Paul would have been more direct in his conversations about women. Oh, yeah. So, for instance, and this, once again, judgment, and we got we to wrap up. But 1 Corinthians 11, fantastic text. Um. It's about women in head coverings oh, yes. and in church. 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain traditions just as I handed them on to you. But I want you to understand. Mm -hmm. Here you go. I want you to understand that Christ is the head yeah. of every man and the husband or the man is the head of his wife. Wait, look, watch my... Oh, okay. Christ, husband, woman. This is why you need the YouTube version, y'all. Watch. Christ is the head of every man. Every man is the head of his wife. And God is the head of Christ. Now, I'm showing you this circular pattern that, that Paul has made because in Greek, there's only one verb Ooh. in the beginning where Christ is the head of the man. 
That's the only verb in this text. And so in order to make it make sense, you have to use the like the logical progression that Paul made, which makes it circular. It's not a hierarchy because oh. God is at the bottom and goes back to the top. You cannot change the order. It has to go that way. And it is circular. There are hints like this throughout all of Paul's writing. But I think if Paul knew we were going to be studying it for thousands of years, Paul would have been more explicit. Don't be judgmental. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.